Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Taboo Taboo Podcast. On today's episode, we have a good friend of mine, Dave. Dave has an incredible story. Dave started out in the 60s, marching with MLK and uh, being a teenage member of the NAACP. We get to go through some of the moments that he's had in his life. Now, you have to understand, this was a three-hour interview. Dave and I are good friends. We had a lot to talk about, so I really had to do a lot to cut this down. But some of the things we do get to cover are Dave's interactions in the civil rights movement, his sobriety, what Buddhism has meant for him and his lifestyle, gay rights and gay culture, both back then and today, and how to push back on the system. If you have any questions about anything that Dave brings up, or you're interested in getting involved, feel free to shoot us an email, tabutabupodcast at gmail.com. If you like this, if you want to hear more from Dave, we will have another episode coming out soon. Um, but I really want to hear from you guys. So shoot us an email, podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Now, I'm not going to cut in on this episode at all. I'm going to let Dave do most of the talking. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dave. You're retired, right? Mm, pretty much. Pre- what do you mean pretty much? You still well, do I projects? do some consulting work, yeah. Okay. And when, when was the, what was the last career you were doing? The last career, I was the uh, managing director for a uh, company in Australia. What did they do? Uh, software development. The company, we, we, actually, we were bought, and that was why I, I left. They, uh, I was too successful. Was, <laughs> the whole idea was to take a startup, right. uh, create enough interest in product that we could sell it, and that's exactly what happened. And what role, was, what role did you have in that company? Uh, well, I was the managing director, so but I ran the place. Of, of, you ran everything? Mm-hmm. You were the COO, basically? Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Why do, why do they call it managing director? Then? That's the term that's used in, in, in uh, the UK and oh. Australia. Um, yeah, rather oh, than chief um, than COO or something like that, right. CMD. I was running another software company in, in Belgium, hmm. uh, in Ghent. And um, then same thing. We uh, created value and uh, got a company to buy us. Where, uh, what, what careers did you have when you first started? First started, uh, I was a uh, computer operator, and uh, a computer operator. Yes, that was back when computers were how big? Um, well, let's see. They took up most of this apartment. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> began to use. Well, I guess the term would be analyst. I my I have a background in industrial statistics too, and. Um, so I was analyzing um, business processes to make them more efficient. Interesting. And so um, my measure, how I was evaluated, was on how much I could save. Mm. So, so the idea, my boss somewhat arbitrarily said, well, how about saving 10 times your cost each year? Oh, wow. And so... It's kind of a tall order. So the upshot was that, uh, yeah, uh, what was I earning? 30000 30, a year, I think, something like that. But in that. what year? Oh, geez, when was that? 70, um, 74. 74. Okay, but 30... That was a good salary. Yeah, it was a good salary, right? Yeah. yeah. But I was saving $6 million a year. Oh, my gosh. You were doing way more than you needed to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They seem to like me. <laughs> and, uh, How many software startups have you been part of? Uh, four. 
Four. And mm-hmm. how many of those were successful? Three. Wow. Holy crap. Isn't the ratio normally like one in seven? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Here's a little bit of a different question. Where did you grow up? Uh, well, it depends on the age. I, uh, Where'd you start? <laughs> South Carolina. Okay. okay. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, I was, the family moved to the, to the South, deep South when I was three. So I have really almost no recollection of, of the North. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, lots of things happened during that time, including, uh, coming out and how uh, old were you when you came out? Uh, let's see. Well, when did my parents know or when did I know? Uh, <laughs> there are quite different questions. Yeah, yeah. When did you know? Before I reached puberty. Wow. And so... Because you... I didn't know what, what it was. I just knew that I wasn't uh, attracted. <laughs> you knew you were queer. <laughs> yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. My, my dad uh, was a chemical engineer. Mm. And my mother's uh, was an attorney. My childhood was like a Montessori school in some ways. <laughs> And um, there were just nonstop projects. I mean, memorizing constellations, memorizing the books of the Bible, memorizing um, or the philosophies of various writers and scholars. I mean, we were going through all of this. This was dinner table conversation. And I took to chemistry probably because Dad was a chemical engineer, and so I started making explosives. And, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> At what age? They didn't have advanced placement, but... They made an accommodation for me, so I took uh, senior-level chemistry when I was, um, what, four years before that. I was in eighth grade, grade T. Oh, wow. And then tutoring the high school students. So, <laughs> so I, I was in middle school. Right. Um, yeah, and then making lots and lots of explosives. Because it <laughs> was fun, right? Boy stuff. Things so, go bang. We're talking about the 60s, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was, so how did you feel about that sort of style of being raised? I didn't really think about it. It was very natural. I knew that when I would have dinner with families of friends or my friends or my brother's friends would come over, it was very different than how they, but I didn't know that as a kid. (laughs) I just knew, oh, okay, well, different family, different. But what was different is that at least I was being a pest because I was challenging things. <laughs> you know, you're telling me to do X, but I want to know why. Right. And, um, and that was allowed. Not, it was allowed in our household, but society didn't really look very kindly on it. Mm-hmm. And so I was often hauled into the principal's office for being combative or argumentative or basically <laughs> difficult. Difficult was the word <clears throat> because I was challenging things. Mm. And so I, maybe some of the roots were back then about thinking how one could do something better. Right. Okay. Yeah. Or why does questioning this, the system, questioning the system, constantly questioning things. It fit in with your career too, because um, you're just find, finding efficiencies. How can we do it better? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why does this make sense? I began to sexually mature and uh, started to have uh, experiences, and uh, my parents discovered that, and I was sent to a psychiatrist. When was that? How old uh, were you? Let's see, it was 14. Oh, wow. And Because um, surely there must be something wrong with you. <laughs> well, first of all, at that time, homosexuality was considered a mental illness. Right. It was in the DSM. It was classified as it a mental illness. It was classified, illness. right. And my parents didn't know what to do. 
and I was not a wallflower. I was saying, <laughs> okay, well, anything it's, but <laughs> it's you know if you're having a problem with it, it's your problem, not mine, right. <laughs> essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, anyway, the psychiatrist uh, persuaded them that. Uh, we were at loggerheads and the best thing to do would be to remove me from the environment. All right. So where we just left off was your parents sent you off to go see a shrink Mm -hmm. and that shrink insisted on taking you out of your home environment. That's right. And this is at the age of 14. Yeah. Okay. What happened next? High school in Washington, DC had relatives in Washington. So, uh, enrolled in uh, public school there. And uh, that was a revelation because all of a sudden <laughs> I was in a large city with a large gay community. Oh. And there were even gay high school students that I was in you know, any event. It was, Out? Oh, yeah. So, so how, it, are, how are people treated in high school being gay in the 60s? Closeted. Of oh, okay. okay. So kind of out to each other. Yeah, that's okay, right. Gotcha. And then... Uh, not out, out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, not out, out. And no, pride, so, no pride parades. <laughs> no, no pride parades. But I, I at least found a gay community of sorts. And uh, got involved in uh, several things. One were gay right demonstrations. Uh, remember, we picketed the White House a couple of times. When and, was this? Oh, geez, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, I was there when Kennedy was assassinated, so that was '63. You were at that rally, or was that at that? Um, I was in high school in Washington. Uh, well, I was at the a couple of things. One was the I was at the March on Washington. I heard King speak, mm-hmm. uh, and I I was again same time frame. Uh, uh, was a high school student. I remember vividly when when Ke- uh, Kennedy was assassinated. Right. That was a school holiday. I was my mother come up from South Carolina. We were shopping for a birthday gift for my father. So I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I went to the uh, service. I remember waiting in line at the Capitol uh, you know, to view the body. Um, but, um, so that was a combination of things. One was, uh, uh, gay rights, but that was a, a small portion of it. The other was civil rights. And that's where, um, I remember there was, I was involved in a Unitarian church and we were sponsoring the freedom writers and, um, a number of things to promote civil rights. And then of course the, the March on Washington. So you got to hear King speak yeah. in person. Yeah, I was on the mall. Wow. Just that kind of opportunity just seems epic to me. Well, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I was just part of, part of thousands of people there. Right. Well, it was a little bit more than that because some of his uh, lieutenants, uh, Ralph Abernathy comes to mind, You know, were, came by the church. Your church? Yeah. The Unitarian Church? Right, yeah. Okay. And, and so... To me, it was just, okay, it's all part of the movement to hmm. do something that I felt was morally right. When did you kind of realize that you needed to be part of this t- type of activism? In South Carolina, my parents... Oh, uh, wow, before you moved. Oh, yeah. Well, you see, the I joined the NAACP at that time, and there were a couple of reasons for it. As an early teenager, you joined the AA- NAACP? Yeah. Oh, right. wow. And... Um, my parents are from the north, and so we were, my brother and I were always raised in a climate that did not promote discrimination. Right. And even though uh, I went to a segregated school, uh, discussions we had around the dining room table and so forth were that this is unfortunate, it's wrong, but it's just how things are in this particular place that we're living in. 
And Interesting. So your parents, on top of being very well educated, were also fairly socially liberal. I I guess you would call it that, but it, they were they maintained what I would call northern values. As I said, my mother was a, <laughs> a lawyer, right. first woman to graduate with a JD degree from the University of Illinois. Oh wow! Um, so they they the whole concept of segregation was foreign to them. Hmm. You're a very young man. You're up in Washington, D.C.? Mm-hmm. High school uh, student. You're part of the NAACP. Mm-hmm. You've seen King speak. You've mm-hmm. seen his lieutenants speak at your church. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of activism were you taking part in at that time? There were several things. <clears throat> there was a, a, a group called SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, <laughs> uh, which was... <laughs> Violent in retrospect, but they call themselves nonviolent. <laughs> and so uh, there were lots of demonstrations and picketing and these kinds of things. Uh, lots of people that were espousing an ideology that kind of made sense at the time of property belongs to the people, you know, individual mm-hmm. property rights are, are not, not good. I mean, I can go on and on and on. But, uh, uh, and then the notion of institutional oppression. How did your family feel about your activism? <sighs> they had very mixed feelings. Um, okay. Because they, re- they said that, that segregation's wrong. Yes. But how are they reacting when you're like, okay, let's do something about it? Well, there are circumstances in the small town, um, frankly, would not have, not have allowed that for that. They would have been ostracized and right. so forth. So that, that wasn't going to happen. Um, I think it was a combination of, of a certain amount of pride, uh, the kids doing something that, that he believes in, uh, and the other was, holy shit, what have we raised? <laughs> We've raised a monster. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Frankenstein in our midst or something. But anyway, um, so I think it was, uh, was ambivalent, but again, they were, they were okay with it. Hmm. It wasn't a huge area of drama or conflict. They weren't against it, though. I feel like that's a huge point. No, they weren't against it. I feel like that's absolutely... How did... And, and did they ever really come to terms with your sexuality? Yeah. So, so the... Probably the defining point of that happened in 70... 76, though. So, <clears throat> the, the um, background was that my grandmother had died. She had gone into a nursing home. And um, my... I got a phone call from my mother that uh, my grandmother had died and the funeral was the next day. Well, I was living in Chicago. There was no way that I could get to the funeral mm-hmm. in South Carolina uh, in just a few hours. Mm. So you couldn't I hop on Southwest. Or? Couldn't, and couldn't. <laughs> there was no. There were no flights that would have gotten me there by the time right. she called me late at night to mm. the funeral, which was. You know, uh, an hour time change and, you know, any event. So it, was, it would have been physically impossible. Um, and the the motives were probably good. Not probably. I'm sure they were good. And that was that I had not been sober for very long. Uh, and they were concerned about the stress that it would cause and the expense of traveling to the funeral and all of those kinds of things. Um, but I uh, I was very uncomfortable with that and it was one of these epiphanies where i realized they don't know me they don't know what's important i was not given a choice Mm. okay uh to attend her funeral and um so i waited for a a few i think two weeks 
and uh, made a, a reservation and so said, we have to have a conversation. Hmm. And uh, caught the first flight out of uh, O'Hare uh, Saturday morning, still remember it. Um, rented a car. They were going to pick me up at the airport. And I said, no, no, I'll, I'll rent a car. Hmm. I wasn't certain what was going to happen. And the worst <laughs> case scenario is they would throw me out of the house and I right. would have to figure out how to hitchhike 40 miles to an airport in the middle of nowhere. So anyway, <laughs> I better rent a car. Right. <clears throat> and we had lunch and I said, you know, really, it's, uh, I don't think you know me. Hmm. And uh, I happen to be gay. Um, they said, kind of thought that you might be. And uh, I said, well, we've, I just wanted to let you know because I don't think you know me. And there were some tears all the way around. Right. Uh, and my father's comments comment was, I can accept it, meaning my sexual orientation, but I can't condone it. Okay. Still remember those words. Okay. Well, at least I didn't get thrown out of the house. <laughs> That's yeah. how I looked at it. Because right. there were plenty of kids that I knew who were, yeah. who had gone through that experience or been beaten and that type of thing. Anyway, so I, I uh, flew back to Chicago uh, and uh, and went to the AA meeting that I normally attend that that evening. So everything was fine. Mm. Um, and over the intervening years, up until the time that that Dad died, it went from uh, the, the the transformation was complete. I mean, he invited my then partner and I to accompany him on a trip to Mexico. <laughs> okay. oh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, it was, it was that sort of thing. And it went from acceptance to tolerance to like, to love. Yeah. Okay. And I never told my brother this, but my father, I guess because of the, and I don't know, lots of things. He had difficulty showing emotion. And I once asked my brother if dad had ever told him that he loved him. And he said, no. And, uh, I didn't tell Doug that toward the end of his life, Dad had, had said that to me because I was calling him daily from mm -hmm. Australia when his health started to decline and everything. So, uh, any of it, it's just one of those things. So, yeah, completely changed. Wow. So, we're talking about 1976. Um, your parents are not publicly shaming you or beating you or throwing you out of the house. Well, um, I had left at that point. I was right. li living You're in, in Chicago. Chicago. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and then what? What you briefly skimmed over was your sobriety. Yeah. So when did when did you officially take that step and become sober <clears throat> for the first time? Well, the first time stuck with me. Fortunately, it doesn't with most. Wow. So the first time you went sober, you stayed sober for the rest of the time. Yeah, it's been forty-one years. Wow. What? So that must have been early seventies. No, it was seventy-five. Oh, okay, seventy-five. Gotcha. You're doing the math. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lot. It's a long time. Of just I mean, So my brother is a drug addict alcoholic. Right. And he relapses every year. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's different. Yeah. Um, I think he hasn't fully accepted addiction and how it affects his life. So he mm -hmm. switches one addiction for another. Mm -hmm. So what addiction did you switch for alcohol? <laughs> or did you just continue down a path of um, centering, centering yourself? What was different for me, and I think it's true of the men and women that I've met that have long-term sobriety, is defeat. I've carried this notion that I could get away with anything 
or I could outsmart the system, or I could somehow muddle through. And I reached a point in my life of defeat. And I had to acknowledge that I didn't have the answers, and I better listen to what others had to say and their recommendations, as opposed to giving lip service to that and then going off and doing something that I felt was better for me than what I was hearing from others. Right. And that's what I did. I listened and I acted on those recommendations and uh, it worked so far. <laughs> so far. <laughs> you never know. I may go out for a drunk tonight or something. Oh, Who knows? no. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Who knows? So what kind of role has sobriety taken in your life overall? <clears throat> well, I'd say it there have been uh, so many ways, but one of them is I feel grateful. I have met men and women that I would never have any opportunity to interact with had it not been through a 12-step program. I have done volunteer work at the uh, in the jails in Santa Clara County, um, So, and then also part of a Buddhist program that helps men who have been discharged from prison um, how to write resumes, how interviewing techniques, uh, life skills, those kinds of things. So that's part of a Buddhist uh, program I'm involved in. So I meet lots and lots of people that are completely different than I am, and I feel enriched by it. I feel very fortunate because I think, you know, that could be me, <laughs> okay? Right. That easily could be me. Uh, but I've I managed to skate by in a lot of cases, but most, many people have not. So any event, uh, it's given me an incredibly rich experience as a result of those encounters. And uh, I've learned a lot from people. I mean, it's so easy to have misconceptions and stereotypes about others. And yeah, there's some of it's true, of course, but a lot of it isn't. And so it has, so that's been one of the benefits, um, and I would say the other is to learn that I don't have to be as assured that I have all the answers. I need to listen more than assume that I have have the answers. So sobriety was an opportunity to... In humility. <laughs> <laughs> Still is. The ultimate test in humility. Yeah, yeah. So religion-wise, you started going to the Unitarian <coughs> Church back when you were in high school. Right. And then that developed into Buddhism? Not immediately. I was raised as an Episcopalian. You have to remember that <laughs> I come from a privileged background. Right. And I figured you're Baptist, honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, if you look at where the, where money is in the United States, most of the wealth is, uh, is centered in are people who claim that, uh, Episcopalian is their religion. In any event. Um, so the upshot is that, um, that's how I was raised as an Episcopalian and, uh, but Jack began to challenge a lot of things over time and the Unitarian beliefs, uh, aligned more with, with my doubt about, uh, deities and so forth. <laughs> and then ultimately I was, uh, led to Buddhism. So Buddhism doesn't carry a deity with it, right? No. You don't have to swear allegiance to, um, the secret guy in the sky? Not in the least bit. Okay. So what is Buddhism then? Buddhism, it's a good question. I ask myself that from time to time about <laughs> what is a Buddhist because can you be a Buddhist and let's say a Catholic? 
Interesting, and, yeah. Because <clears throat> I have, uh, I'm, again, I'm so privileged to have met many people. These include priests who I uh, met through AA and some of the other stuff that I'm involved in. They are very comfortable maintaining their vocation as, as priests and yet at the same time uh, adopting a very Buddhist type of philosophy. In Buddhism is not a religion. It's, it, it's really a matter of life, uh, of a lifestyle, if you will, like AA. And the only requirement there is the concept of what are called the four, seal, four seals. Uh, these are the fundamental tenets of, of Buddhism. What are the four tenets of Buddhism? Four, four seals. Uh, the four seals. I was afraid you were going to ask me that, and I was mentally thinking, <laughs> okay, what are they again? <laughs> so <clears throat> the, um, the concept is that everything is impermanent. Okay? Mm. Uh, another concept is that there is no inherent nature in things. Nothing's inherent. Well, by contrast, some of the Greek philosophers felt that that objects possessed a property. Mm-hmm. So a cup, for example, had the property of a cup, and it defined a cup, and there were all these attributes. In Buddhism, the concept of objects having some fundamental nature doesn't exist. Okay. So then there aren't inherent rights in humans? That's right. Okay. That would be a concrete example. That would be one example. Yeah. Or that a, a, a physical object has no inherent properties other than its physical nature, which can be subject to destruction. I mean, mountains wear down over time. Right. We have decay and these kinds of things. So nothing's for, forever. Our universe is going to explode at some point. Probably. We think that's <laughs> the case at least. But So nothing's forever. Nothing's forever. Forever. Um, and there's no inherent nature to things. Mm-hmm. What else? And it sounds kind of nihilistic, doesn't it? But <laughs> you can yeah, think about it. but it's also very literal in a way. It yeah. takes away a lot of the mystery and metaphors <clears throat> that we right. build into our culture. Right. Another is that clinging is suffering. Cling to suffering. Clinging is suffering. Oh, clinging is suffering. So yes. to hold on to things is to suffer. Mm-hmm. So let everything go, or at least be aware of it. Okay. Okay, yeah. If you can't let it go, be aware. Yeah, that's right. So why am I, what are my desires? Why am I desiring something? Hmm. And uh, the other is that nirvana is unknowable. Unknowable. Mm -hmm. But is that the goal, is to pursue the unknowable? Yes, it is. That seems very nihilistic, but it's right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you think about it, it sort of makes sense. Yeah. And um, that is that we can't, we don't know what we don't know. Yep. And that there is a concept that we can achieve a state um, of peace and serenity and so forth. And some people refer to that as nirvana. Mm-hmm. But uh, in any case, that's the concept of pursuing enlightenment is to to increase one's knowledge. And I was lousy at praying. <laughs> <laughs> it almost felt like you were talking to yourself, right? <laughs> and yeah, or you know, sometimes the neighbors would beat on the wall. But anyway, I just uh, but I I just never got it, and I didn't really get meditation either. And so I thought, this is what should I do? And I came across a uh, retreat 
that was free. I couldn't believe it, but somebody would, would feed me and bed me for, um, for two weeks for nothing. Wow. And, um, I thought this sounds like <laughs> too good to be true, but I checked and other people said, Oh yeah, it's wonderful. So I, uh, I did that. I went up into um, Sonoma County uh, at, a, at a Buddhist retreat facility for a couple of weeks and meditated for uh, 10 days, 10 hours a day. Wow. And uh, that's what we did. And I thought I was going to go crazy the first <laughs> couple of days. And I was thinking about sneaking out middle of the night. Um, <clears throat> the gate was closed but not locked. I, you know, I, I, all this whole thing, it was really difficult in the beginning. But I look back through at this point in my life and I think what have been, what have, are some of the most transformative things I've ever done? And I'd say getting sober and that two week experience are among the two. Wow. And, uh, it was, I mean, that uh, unbelievable tough in the beginning, but the more I did it, the easier it became. And when I returned to, uh, uh the South Bay, I synced up with a uh, uh, a Zen uh, group in Sunnyvale and um, attended their classes for a couple of years to learn more about Buddhism and uh, what are called the precepts, which is kind of like the Ten Commandments, only these are precepts, not commandments. There are eight of them, not ten. But any event, what do some of these things mean, the writings of the Buddha? I got and still got, maintained good relations with the monks uh, at the... Uh, monastery there so changing the topic a little yeah, bit yeah what do you see as some of the biggest advancements with um with gay rights and um gay, just gay awareness in general since you first came out to your parents <laughs> versus today well um it was interesting so i was in the castro earlier today with a, having lunch with a friend and walking down castro and there was a, a huge festival event taking place at the Castro Theater, and it was lesbians in tech, um, <laughs> and uh, lots and lots of women in the in the Castro, and all these companies, logos and signs, recruiting people. Never would have seen anything like that. What I feel is that in many ways, we are, it's, it's time to declare victory, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, I... I, I was certainly very active, and we haven't even gone into this, about all the stuff that took place uh, during the, the height of the AIDS epidemic oh, yeah. and um, those kinds of things. And it's really, when I look back on it, I mean, I never expected to see anything like gay marriage in my lifetime. Never wow, expected that. really? Never. Never would, you know. Uh, the height of the AIDS scare was in the 80s, right? That's right. And so during that time, obviously you're... You're young and you're dating, right? And demonstrating and picketing and raising <laughs> hell, absolutely. Right, and building a career and yep. saving companies millions of dollars. Yep. So what, did you ever have free time? <laughs> well, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you weren't out getting drunk, that's for sure. That's right. So what was it like going through that that whole scare of the, the AIDS and, and the other social stigma about it? That was maybe even a bigger issue. Well, what I, I have lots of memories because I... I lived here in San Francisco uh, for a while and then ultimately uh, moved, uh, moved to the South Bay. Uh, my partner at the time discovered he was HIV positive. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm not. Um, 
we didn't know um, what to do at that point. We didn't practice safe sex. Right. Uh, I guess I dodged a bullet. But anyway, the we certainly tried to educate ourselves as much as we possibly could because it was it was all new to everybody. Yeah. And um, th- so some of the things that that I worked on were. Um, demonstrations and writing letters and making phone calls and so forth to get funding for AIDS research because the government was spending almost no money at that point. Right. And um, then when I, part of that was caring for people. I mean, you could look at somebody and know if they had AIDS for the most part. Wow. Really? Oh, yeah. The color of skin, the way they walked. Um, shrunken complexions. I mean, it was so obvious. We're not talking about HIV. We're talking about full-blown AIDS. Yes. Yeah. But but even before, well, I mean, what's, it's, I guess you reach a tipping point, but you have people who have the disease at that time was uh, was called thrush, which is an opportunistic infection. Um, mm. And because uh, the immune system gets compromised and all these things start to happen, and you could just right. look at somebody and see how healthy they were. And so I just remember looking, you know, you'd take a walk on the Castro Street and it seemed like every third person had was uh, infected. And wow. what um, what happened was that so many of the, of the men that were infected were some of the brightest and best in the gay community. And um, so losing so many people was, was really tragic. What I also discovered, though, was a sense of power and community that I hadn't seen before. Uh, there are lots of people that pay lip service to things, but during the height of the epidemic, um, we were pitching in. You know, there would be men who lived alone or whose partners had predeceased them, and they were sick, and who's going to take care of them? Who's going to get the groceries? Who's going to make sure they take the meds? Who's going to clean up after them after they shit in the bed. I mean, you know, it's that graphic, but that's what happens. And so we were all pitching in to help these people. Wow. And bringing them into our homes when they could not take care of themselves any longer. And I remember at the time there was only, it seemed like I was going to one funeral a week. And I remember there was only one funeral home in San Jose. Uh, They're still there on Lincoln Avenue that was even willing to accept the bodies of men who had died from HIV because everyone was terrified. We didn't know about the disease and everyone was afraid they were going to get it. Um, I remember even my dentist, you know, it was like going into a NASA mission. They would all suit up (laughs) before they would clean my teeth. I'm very serious. What the fuck? But people didn't know. Right. So, and it was considered the gay disease, right? So, and I remember, uh, especially the women, gay and straight women, but how generous they were of giving of their time and money to help their male friends, period, through end of life, typically. Right. Um, but fundraisers, home health care, Basically um, taking on hospice for people that's in, what your, we in your were, community. That's what we were doing, exactly. And then burying them. Yeah, absolutely. Because in many cases, their families had disowned them. There, that engendered a tremendous amount of activism. One was making sure that we started, Congress was going to fund this 
because there was very little money that was being spent on the research. Most of it was in France. And, um, and it really wasn't until Rock Hudson's death that um, things started to get some degree of attention. Who's that? Uh, he, <laughs> Rock Hudson? No idea. Oh, he was, he was a major movie star. Oh, okay. And uh, played all these straight roles and uh, handsome, um, buff guy. And um, then um, contracted HIV, went to France to try to get treatment, but they really couldn't do anything with him. And he chartered a 707 to fly him back to the United States because he was too sick to take a commercial flight mm. and didn't want to be seen. But, uh, oh yeah, I'm a big film star. Anyway, <clears throat> um, the upshot is that that caused the gay community to come together as I don't think anybody had ever has done since. When you think about it, come on, the gay population is three and a half, maybe four percent. Okay, with the, with the best statistics. Yeah, exactly. Have. Right, and and the black population is around twelve and a half, thirteen percent. So it's less, way less than half the black black, black population of the right. United States. Right. It is amazing to me what we have been able to accomplish with just such small numbers. I mean, if you just end in the time frame, you think about women's suffrage and how long it took women to get the right to vote and right. how long it took blacks, you know, civil rights. Right. And then look at the just very brief amount of time that it took for gay rights to, um, to be realized and against pretty significant odds. I mean, there was a Briggs initiative here in California, prop eight and, um, yeah, that was so, recent. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, I mean, all sorts of things that had to be fought. And, but look at what's happened now. So, I, you, you really think it's time to declare victory? I do. Um, wow. I, you know, it's, I say that because there will always be discrimination. It's never going to sure. be, you never can't eliminate it. Right. Um, and I think that, okay, well, let me put it this way. The only kind of discrimination that I felt when I returned to the United States is that I am, at that time at least, was not allowed to give blood. Okay, now I'm HIV negative, but that that was kind of the last vestige. Now that's not to say that that uh, LGBT people don't face discrimination. Everybody faces some type, right? Yeah. But is it? at the level that it can that it warrants a lot of energy to address and my sense is yeah i at least for me it doesn't i um uh, yet yet at the same time the fight that you were originally fighting the civil rights stuff we still have to fight that today it there hasn't been it seems to me now i'm this is a naive perspective because i only know recent history but it seems to me that yes there was a huge advancement in gay rights mm-hmm. um but on the flip side, we still have issues with uh, sexism and issues with racism. Not necessarily uh, racism one-to-one, but maybe institutionalized racism, racism. I struggle with a lot of this. I really do. Um, and here's... My thoughts are, first of all, they're assholes in every group, right? <laughs> and one of the things that I very much appreciate about where we are in in society today is that when I lived here, when I first moved to San Francisco, um, 
we had gay ghettos all over the country. Okay, there was a gay ghetto in Chicago. Uh, I didn't live there, but there certainly certainly had friends who did. Gay ghettos here in, in San Francisco, Castro being one. Uh, New York, Greenwich Village. Now I can go down the laundry list of uh, gay neighborhoods in various in large cities. And what has happened is that for the most part those neighborhoods have um, become much more diverse because there isn't the sense that you have to band together for self-protection. Hmm. Nobody's going to go beating me up because I wear a rainbow hat or something like that. Right. Okay. Right. But back in the day, that wasn't the case. There right. was always this risk of, of uh, assault. <clears throat> um, and as a result of that, most of us had who were gay maintained LGBT friends because again it was a protective nature of the herd or something right community and a sense that we wouldn't be accepted by others and that was a big that was the elephant in the room I don't see that today and I'm very grateful of it for it because right now I, I, my, most of my friends are straight. Okay, <laughs> uh, they really, you know, and nobody cares. Right? Nobody cares. I remember when you first came out to me, and I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> you know, I was like, "I'm not sure that was necessary, but sure." But well, if it, I just any event. So, you know, I don't wear a rainbow f uh, flag tattooed on my forehead, but you should. I probably should. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Might cover up the bald spot, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, the the upshot is that I I don't it just is not a big thing and I'll give you an for, example. Are you so, talking about for gay people? Well, for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for okay. you specifically. And I I talk I talk with others and you know there's a sense that at times that um, uh, I don't want to be identified and that and I'll tell you this happened recently um, as as you know I um, I'm a firearms enthusiast type. Yeah teach people to shoot. In fact, we're having our LGBT sh monthly shoot tomorrow. Um, <laughs> the pink pistols, right? The pink pistols. So yeah. Um, <coughs> shoot to thrill. Anyway, the, uh, <laughs> the upshot is that I also, um, uh, teach kids on Saturday mornings. Um, uh, and very happy with what our little group in San Jose has done. And we have three of the champions of the United States and California out of the small range. Who would have thought? Wow. I know. And, um, and several of them are illegals. <laughs> well, one is an Indian girl, the first in her family, who's Native American, if you will. She was born here. Her parents immigrated from India. Uh, her dad's a Cisco engineer. Anyway, I can go a lot, on lots and lots of things. But the point of it is that um, I, I enjoy this a lot, and I enjoy seeing kids have fun and be safe and, and that type of thing. Where I'm going with this is the, the upshot that we have um, these these wrong notions of what it's like to be a member of a certain community and so forth. And one of the things that I was very concerned about was that I would be rejected and oh, met with overt hostility by people in the in the gun community. Okay? Mm -hmm. the, many of them, many of the ardent 
Second Amendment supporters or ex-military cops, mm-hmm. uh, big, bad, and butch, you know, <laughs> right. don't make any difference whether you're a big, bad, and butch man or woman. I right. mean, they're some hard, uh, hard-ass people in this community. Driving trucks. And oh, and yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And um, that type of thing. And that was what I was expecting to get was a lot of, if not outright hostility, just muted acceptance, but ultimately rejection. Right. Hasn't happened. I mean, it's just been the opposite. Wow. Absolute opposite, yeah. Fully accepted. <laughs> Not only su- accepted, supported. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. And, of and, course, you're now part of organizing things. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the, my point of it is that <clears throat> we often have wrong impressions about how we're, how we're going to be treated. Right. And that... But it's still there. So I, where I was going with this is one of the <laughs> telltale out of school a little bit. Believe it or not, the driving force behind this gun club that I participate in in, in the South Bay are the gay men and women. <laughs> okay? Yeah. I'm serious. Yeah. We are the energy behind the group. We're the ones who are organizing <laughs> events, getting stuff done, right. yada, yada, yada. Okay. And one you of those organizational skills early. <laughs> oh, yeah. We had to figure Activism, out lots of problems. Rally, That's yeah. right. And, of course, her learning to party. Right. But, uh, <laughs> so the, and dress. Let's not neglect fashion. But the, the upshot is that one of the men who was, who's really uh, had a heart of gold um, is heavily invested with, with teaching these kids to shoot. And spends a lot of money buying pizzas for the kids, and oh. you know these kinds of things. Uh, if they, we went to family court in one situation to um, help support the ad, as an advocate for the kid who was having some conflicts with the stepdad, and these kinds of things, way beyond anything that you would expect. You know, just as somebody who teaches kids to shoot or monitors the range, and. Um, I asked him if he would be comfortable being listed as a supporter or an organizer for the Pink Pistols group. And he said, no, he didn't want that because he was afraid (coughs) that it would cause misconceptions about his relationship with the kids. Mm. And I understand that because, you know, um, I don't know whether it's true with with straight men. I've really not had this discussion uh, but I know as a gay man, I am very, very careful to make certain that there is always another adult present right. when I'm around any kid. Right. We were talking about this the other yeah, day. Yeah, we were. And, I, and the way I was talking about it was it's right out of the conservative handbook to take somebody who is different and label them a predator, a freak, um, somebody who's obviously bad, <coughs> bad for the public good. Um, so they did that with black people, they mm-hmm. did that with gay, and then they did that with trans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there are lots of ways to institutionalize hatred and so forth. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's that is one thing that I find myself being a bit careful about. Yeah. Um, because um, uh, it, it's it's easy to... How do you regain your reputation? Yeah, okay? you yeah. Anybody can accuse you of anything. And, and once that's done, it, it's really difficult to... To recover, so I don't even, you know, I know a number of men actually who said I, I would love to help out and do these kinds of things, but I frankly don't want to have 
any professional exposure, any professional risk that could come back to haunt me. So they stay away, and it's just the sad reality of things. But outside of that um, concern, yeah, I I just feel like um, I ask myself, what is it that we need to do? And I look at the finances, for example, of some of the gay organizations and. If you look at their uh, IRS 990 forms, you know, which have to show the the um, donations and their expenses and so forth, and virtually everyone has plummeted. Because you think, why do we why do we need a gay center? Okay, <laughs> I mean, what's in it for me? Right, what's um, the gay fight for? Yeah. That's right, and you know, I think there's some reasons. Um, I'm not trying to diss, diss them at all, but right. I, I, it's we still have a very high suicide rate. Among gay youth, mm-hmm. it's declined, but it's still up there. Uh, it's tough, you know, becoming being an adolescent and coming to grips with one's sexuality, regardless of whether you're straight or gay or somewhere in between. Yeah. And uh, so all that's tough, but still, um, I think for in most cases, it's kind of difficult for me to imagine um, uh, any significant anti-gay sentiment now. Who knows? I mean, we live in a California. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. We're kind of in a bubble. A yeah, bit. it could yeah. be. Yeah. could be. But even when I've gone to rural areas, um, again, I'm not wearing my heart on my, my rainbow flag on my forehead. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not hearing the the jokes and the um, all those kinds of things that I remember from 40 years ago. Right. Okay. What kind of so you're talking about whole, being wholeheartedly accepted as who you are in in different communities that you assume would not be so accepting, right? What role do you think um, that you being cis, white, and male play in that wholehearted acceptance? I don't know. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Actually, I kind of enjoy. Um, encounters with people who have preconceived notions. Um, I wish I could have more of them, but, um, I, there are men and women I meet from time to time who have chips on their shoulders and they're looking for a reason to justify their own disdain for others of some particular segment. And, Okay, well, just because you hate me doesn't mean we can't have a nice cup of coffee together. You know, that's kind of how I look at it or something. Right. Have a nice conversation. Okay. Right. Yeah. Do you, what, but what I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that, um, do you think that if someone were gay and trans, that their, their experience may be different, say, in the gun club? <coughs> Well, <laughs> this may shock you. Um, <laughs> one of my very close friends is trans. She has two adult children, um, is divorced from her wife, uh, went to Thailand and had all the boy parts removed. Um, and you mean converted? <laughs> whatever the term is, the, now she is biologically a female. Right. All the male things have been removed and whatever breasts augmented. Um, 
and her relationships, because I frankly was confused. I asked her, I said, are, are you attracted to men or women at this point in your life? Or either, I don't know. Right. And um, she said, um, women. Hmm. So she's gay and trans. Yes. And has she ever come to your gun club before? I shoot with her all the time. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Did she have the same reception that you had, do you think? You know, we've never really talked about it, only from the context of how she has been received. I have been to a rally with her. She was one of the featured speakers and um, and introduced as uh, a trans uh, firearms enthusiast. And there are all these people there who... <laughs> Yeah, true. They were dressed in fatigues and military attire. And, you know, it's this, you think, okay, you're putting on your badass gar- drag right. here, okay? Right. You know, um, and a group I hadn't heard of them called the Three Percenters. This is sort of an, um, I don't know if they're neo-Nazi, but in any event, um, the sort of people you'd think of that live in rural areas of Idaho and, you know, right, yeah. Bumfuck and, uh, and, and Aryan nation type stuff. Okay. Crew cuts and any event. Um, but they were, were, just, they swarmed her and me because of the association. It was pretty clear that we were kind of there together um, and thrusting business cards into our hands and come to our rally and blah, 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 blah. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. So, that's what I mentioned earlier. I huh. just seen not just acceptance and, you know, celebrate, come join us, you know, <laughs> nobody cares. Right. Yeah. So, um, that it's true that I think she, and it's true with many people, many trans who are, let's say, you, well, that, you sure that person's a female, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, for example, doesn't look all that feminine. Um, so there's a certain amount of, I think, discomfort that some people have with that. But at the end of the day, um, I think most people recognize that, well, that individual had to go through a hell of a lot to get to where he or she is. Right. Most people that I've met are, are male to female uh, conversions. But still, it works the other way. Um, and what do I know about what they had to go through in terms of an coming to grips with feeling different, not knowing what it is, so forth and so on. And I asked her, I said, I, I have no I have no knowledge about what it's been like for you or anybody else. Are there any kind of ground rules that, okay, I know that most are male to female, but does that make them, but do they then prefer sexually, do they prefer males at that point or females or what? And I said, right. and she was telling me, no, there aren't any rules. It just depends on the individual. <laughs> right. Some um, prefer males after they've been converted to females and others prefer females as, uh, she did before when she was a male, I mean, right. she married and had, has two kids, but same sexual preference. That's right. Different body. That's right. Wasn't that just an amazing episode? I love how right at the end we get a tease about, about the next episode, about how Dave's working with kids with guns. We get to talk about the pink pistols a little bit, which is fantastic. Dave is such an incredible guy. He's still doing so many more things today than he actually talked about in this episode. So wait for the next episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. We get to talk, uh, we get a deep dive on more of the issues that we were just talking about today. Plus, there's a few little secrets that he actually reveals in this next episode. 
So uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, shoot me an email, tabutabupodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing back from you. Give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And if you're not sure, we're available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, I'm proud to announce that we officially have a Patreon page. So check us out at patreon.com slash tabutabupodcast. Anything you can you contribute will absolutely help grow this podcast, and hopefully more people get to hear about awesome experiences like Dave's. So thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a great day, and I'll catch you next time.